Section 15 of The Bigham's Fortune by Jules Verne, translated by W. H. G. Kingston. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 15 The Exchange of San Francisco. The exchange of San Francisco, by which term is expressed, as it were, algebraically, immense industrial and commercial business, presents one of the strangest and most animated scenes in the world. The geographical position of the capital of California imparts to its exchange, as a natural consequence, the cosmopolitan character, which is one of its most remarkable features." Beneath its handsome red granite porticos, the tall, fair Saxon jostles the slight, active, dark-haired Celt. The Negro meets the Finlander and the Hindu. The Polynesian gazes with astonishment at the Greenlander. The Chinaman, with oblique eyes and long-plated pigtail, endeavors to outdo in trade his historic enemy, the Japanese." Every tongue, every dialect, every jargon mingles there as in a modern babel. On the 12th of October, this place of business opened in its usual way. At about eleven o'clock, the principal brokers and men of business began to arrive, accost one another gravely or gaily, according to their several tempers, shaking hands and going together to the refreshment bar to fortify themselves by liquoring up. For the operations of the day. One after the other went to open the little metal door of the numbered letter-boxes, which in the vestibule received the correspondence of subscribers. Enormous packets of letters were drawn forth and eagerly examined. In a short time the market prices for the day were announced, when the crowd gradually increased. Groups more or less numerous were formed, from among which arose a murmur and hum of human voices. Then commenced a shower of telegraphic messages from all quarters of the globe. Scarcely a minute passed that the officials of the exchange did not add a fresh strip of blue paper to the collection of telegrams placarded on the north wall, which was read forth in a stentorian voice amid the now deafening buzz. The commotion and hubbub went on increasing. Clerks rushed in and out. The telegraph office was besieged. Messages sent out. Answers received every instant. All notebooks were open. Entries made, erased, or torn up. At about one o'clock, a contagious excitement appeared to take possession of the crowd. A mysterious sensation passed like the trembling of an earthquake through these agitated groups of human beings. A piece of news, startling, unexpected, and incredible, had been brought by one of the partners in the bank of the far west, and it circulated with the rapidity of an electric flash. Exclamations and comments were heard on all sides. Impossible! It's a trick, a hoax, said some. Who is likely to believe anything so preposterous? Well, said others, there may be something in it. No smoke without fire, you know. But is a man in his position likely to fail? People in apparently the very best positions fail. But, sir, cried one, 
The fixtures, tools, and engines alone represent more than $80 million. Without reckoning the cast iron and steel raw material and manufactured articles, added another. To be sure, that's just what I say, too. Schultz is good for 90 millions of dollars, and I'll undertake to be answerable for that on his demand. Well, but then how do you explain the suspension of payment? Explain? I don't explain it at all. I don't believe it. Don't you? As if such things did not happen every day to houses of the most firm and established reputations. Stolstadt is not a house. It is a city. Of course, it is perfectly impossible it can have broken up so completely. A company will certainly be formed to carry on the business. But why on earth did not Schultz form such a company instead of declaring himself bankrupt? Exactly, sir, and there's the absurdity. So absurd that the statement won't bear examination. It is neither more nor less than a pure fabrication, probably invented by Nash, who is desperately anxious for a rise in steel. A fabrication? False intelligence? Nothing of the sort. Schultz has not only failed, he has absconded. Come, come. Absconded, sir. The telegram announcing it has this moment been posted up. A formidable wave of humanity rolled towards the frame in which the dispatches were placarded. The last strip of blue paper bore these words. New York, 1240, Central Bank, Manufactory of Stallstadt, Stopped Payment, Liabilities, as far as known, $47 million. Schultz has disappeared. There was now no doubt about the truth of the astounding intelligence, and conjectures and rumors were rife. By two o'clock, lists of failures consequent upon that of Schultz began to pour in. The Mining Bank of New York lost most. The firm of Westerly and Son at Chicago was implicated to the extent of $7 million. The house of the Mitwalkies of Buffalo five millions, the Industrial Bank of San Francisco, a million and a half. The names of numbers of minor firms followed with proportionate losses. But without waiting for this news came the natural rebound. The money market, which was so dull in the morning, was now not steady for two hours together. What starts, what rises, what fluctuations, what unrestrained speculation, a rise in steel, and going up every minute, a rise in coal, a rise in the shares of all the foundries in the American Union, a rise in the products of every kind of iron industry, a rise in Frankville land. Although on the declaration of war, the latter had fallen to zero, and disappeared from the list of quotations. It had now suddenly risen to a hundred and eighty dollars an acre. In the evening, the newspaper shops were perfectly besieged. But though the Herald, the Tribune, the Alta, the Guardian, the Echo, and the Globe printed in gigantic characters the meager information they had been able to collect, it after all amounted to very little. All that was known was that on the 25th of September, a draft, 
for eight millions of dollars, accepted by Herr Schultz, drawn by Jackson, Elder, and Company of Buffalo, having been presented to Schring, Strauss, and Company, the King of Steel's bankers in New York, those gentlemen had stated that the balance to their client's account was insufficient for such an enormous sum and had telegraphed this to him without receiving any answer. On referring to their books, they perceived with consternation that for thirteen days no letter and no bills had come from Stahlstadt. From that moment drafts and checks drawn by Herr Schultz on their bank came in daily to undergo the fate of being returned with the words, No funds. For four days, inquiries, telegrams, and furious questions rained from one side on the bank and then again on Stahlstadt. At last, a decisive reply was given. Herr Schultz disappeared on the 17th of September, so said the telegram. No one can throw the least light on this mystery. He has left no orders, and the coffers in every section are empty. Since then it had been no longer possible to conceal the truth. Many of the principal creditors had taken fright and sent in their claims to the commercial court. Ruin spread rapidly in all directions. At twelve o'clock on the 13th of October, the total amount of failures was estimated at forty-seven millions of dollars. When everything became known, it was likely to amount to sixty millions. This was all that could be said, and all that the journals, with a few exceptions, could report. Of course, they announced for the next day full and special particulars, as yet unpublished, and indeed, to do them justice, each, within an hour of the first announcement, had dispatched a correspondent on the road to Stahlstadt. By the evening of the 14th of October, Steel City was besieged by an army of reporters, all with open notebooks and pencils in hand. Like a wave, however, they broke against the outer wall, for the sentries were in their places, and any attempt to bribe or soften them was utterly in vain. They, nevertheless, ascertained that the workmen as yet knew nothing, and that the routine of the sections in nothing had been changed. The overseers had merely announced the day before, by superior order, that no funds nor instructions had been issued from the central block, and that, in consequence, the works would be suspended the following Saturday, unless contrary orders were received. All this only complicated, instead of throwing any light on the situation, that Herr Schultz had disappeared for nearly a month, of that there was no doubt, but what might be the cause and import of this disappearance no one knew. A vague impression that the mysterious personage might at any moment reappear still prevailed, and seemed to lessen the general uneasiness. For some days all work had gone on as usual. Everyone had pursued his task within the limited horizon of his section. The salaries were paid from the strong boxes every Saturday, and the principal coffer had met all the local necessities— 
but centralization had been brought to too high a pitch of perfection in Stahlstadt. The master had reserved so absolutely to himself the superintendence of everything that his absence could not fail in a very short time to cause a stoppage in the machinery. Thus, from the 17th of September, the day on which the King of Steel had signed his orders for the last time up to the 13th of October, when the news of the suspension of payment had burst like a thunderclap, millions of letters, a large number containing considerable bills, passed through the Stahlstadt post office, had been deposited in the box of the central block, and no doubt had reached Herr Schultz's study, but he alone had the right to open them, mark them with a red pencil, and transmit them to the principal cashier. Even the highest functionaries in the town never dreamt of doing anything out of their regular department, Invested with almost absolute power over their subordinates, they were, each in connection with Herr Schultz, as they were also with his memory, like so many instruments, without authority, without power of initiating, or a voice in any matter. Each fortified himself within the narrow limits of his commission, waited, temporized, and watched the course of events. The end came at last— this remarkable state of affairs was prolonged until the principal houses interested, suddenly seized with a panic, telegraphed, begged for an answer, entreated, protested, and finally commenced legal proceedings. This took some time. No one was willing hastily to suspect that prosperity, so firmly believed in, had been resting on an insecure basis but the fact was now patent. Herr Schultz had fled from his creditors. This was all that the reporters could gather. The celebrated Michael John himself, famous for having extracted a political avowal from President Grant, the most taciturn man of his time, the indefatigable blunderbuss, remarkable for being the first, although but a simple correspondent of the world, to announce to the Tsar the news of the capitulation of Plevna. Even these great men, in the reporting line, had not this time been more fortunate than their brethren. They were forced to confess to themselves that the Tribune and the world could not yet give the latest news of the bankrupt Schultz. That Stahlstadt was indeed in a strange situation will be seen when it is remembered that it was an independent and isolated town, permitting no regular and legal inquiry. Herr Schultz's signature was, it is true, protested at New York, and his creditors had every reason to believe that the stock and manufactory would indemnify them in some degree. But to what court should they apply to obtain an execution or a sequestration? Stahlstadt lay in a territory of its own, where everything belonged to Herr Schultz. If only he had left a representative, an administrative council, or a substitute. But there was nothing of the sort. He himself was king, judge, general-in-chief, notary, lawyer, and the only commercial court in the city— in his person, he had realized the ideal of centralization. 
Therefore, he being absent, there was absolutely no one in power, and the whole fabric fell like a house of cards. In any other situation, the creditors would have been able to form a syndicate, substituting themselves for Herr Schultz, lay hand on the stock, and take the direction of affairs. To all appearance, only a little money and regulating power was needed to set the machine to work. But nothing of this was possible. The proper legal instrument to effect this substitution was wanting. There was a moral barrier round the city of steel, which was, if possible, more insurmountable than its walls. The unfortunate creditors could see the securities for their debts, though quite unable to touch them. All they could do was to unite in a general assembly and agree to address a request to the Congress to ask it to take their case in hand, espouse the interests of its natives, pronounce the annexation of Stahlstadt to American territory, and thus include this monstrous creation in the common laws of civilization." Several members of the Congress were personally interested in the business. The request was tempting to the American character, and there was reason to believe that it would be crowned with complete success. Unfortunately, the Congress was not then in session, so that a long delay was to be feared before the matter could be submitted to it. Until that time, nothing could be done in Stahlstadt, and one by one the furnaces were extinguished. The consternation among the population of ten thousand families who lived by the manufactory was profound. But what were they to do? Continue to work in hopes of wages, which might be six months in coming, or might never come at all? No one was inclined to adopt this opinion. Besides, what work could they do? The source from which orders came was dried up, as well as everything else. All Herr Schultz's clients waited the legal solution. The heads of the sections, engineers, and overseers could do nothing for want of orders. Numberless assemblies, meetings, and debates took place, though no plan could really be fixed on. The enforced stoppage soon brought with it a train of misery, despair, and vice. As the workshops emptied, the public houses filled. For each chimney which ceased to smoke in the factory, a tavern sprung up in one of the neighboring villages. The wisest and most prudent among the workmen, those who had foreseen hard times and had laid by for a rainy day, hastened to escape with bag and baggage, and happy rosy-cheeked children wild with delight at the new world revealed to them, peeped through the curtains of the departing wagons, loaded with their father's tools and furniture and the precious bedding dear to the heart of the housewife. These all were scattered east, south, and north, soon finding other factories, other anvils, other hearthstones. But for one who could thus depart— there were ten whose poverty nailed them to the soil. There they remained hollow-eyed and broken-hearted, selling their poor garments to the flock of birds of prey in human shape, 
whose instinct attracts them to scenes of great disasters, reduced to the last extremities in a few days, deprived of credit as well as of wages, of hope as well as work, and seeing before them a future of misery as black and dismal as the fast approaching winter. End of section 15